Welcome to the Diverse Minds Podcast, where we give you the tips, tools, and techniques you need to be a mentally healthy and inclusive leader. Each week, you'll hear about a variety of topics linked to mental health, well-being, and diversity that will enhance both your professional practice and personal well-being. Welcome to the 142nd episode of the award-winning Diverse Minds Podcast. And this month, as it's Mental Health Awareness Month and the year's theme is loneliness, the topic of the podcast is all about loneliness and the impact on mental health of various groups. And today I'm talking about how racism creates mental ill health with a particular focus on the workplace. Now, don't forget, I really love to hear from you as listeners. And to make this super easy, I've created a place online where you can leave me a voice note, either with your name or anonymously, you can choose. And the link is in the show notes. But in case you want it now, it's bit.ly SPKPDMP. And I really look forward to hearing from you. So I wanted to focus on this topic today. It is a big topic and I don't have time to delve into all the areas connected with mental health and racism, of which there are many. However, what I did want to do is to capture some key ones and link it to this theme of loneliness and isolation and what can be done in the workplace. Now, you might think, well, really, this isn't such a big deal in the workplace. People are professional and they know how to behave. But if you want to know more about that, please check out episode number 68 entitled Still Too Scared to Talk About Race, where I go into more detail about this. However, what I would say is that behaviours that may seem subtle, we are very unlikely to see in most UK workplaces, people with placards who maybe associate with Nazi groups saying X group go home. That is quite rare. But what we will observe and what we will experience as global majority black and diaspora communities is subtle communication expressing negative, hostile and prejudicial thoughts that then creates environments where people feel unwelcome, thus creating loneliness. So if we think about well-being in its entirety, and this is research that was done by Raffenharter in 2010, highlighting five different well-being categories. We have career well-being, how you occupy your time or simply enjoy what you do every day, whether it's a traditional career or non-traditional career. Social well-being, having strong relationships and love in your life. And that's not just heteronormative love. That's all the different types of connections that we have. Financial well-being, effectively managing your economic life. Physical well-being, having good health and enough energy to get things done on a daily basis, and that applies to disabled and non-disabled people. Community well-being, the sense of engagement you have with the area where you live. So, of course, if we think about career well-being, social well-being, financial well-being, those three things are linked to our work or how we gain money or how we find ways to live from the day to day. So if these are impacted and if we experience racism or we experience environments that impact our well-being based on our identity, that's going to have a huge negative blow to our mental health and well-being. So that's to frame it. And then I wanted to touch on some of the, I think one example that we talk a lot about in the UK is the National Health Service. And interestingly, the National Health Service is England's largest employer of global majority black and diaspora communities. It's in fact 37% of doctors, 20% of nurses and 17% of all directly employed staff are from black global majority and diaspora backgrounds. And I think it's fair to say the NHS, particularly in England, would collapse without those communities being part of the NHS. And it's no secret that the NHS has depended on the talents of its diverse workforce since its inception in 1948, the very same year that passengers of HM, 
Empire Windrush disembarked at the port of Tilbury on the 22nd of June. And if you want to know more about Windrush and Windrush Day, do check out my episode with Dr. Patrick Vernon all about Windrush Day on the 22nd of June. We also think about Filipino nurses joining NHS Trust. They were encouraged to do that from the 2000s. We've got campaigns at the moment to encourage nurses from the continent of Africa to come and work in the UK. And there's been some very tragic stories about how women have been because it is primarily women locked into contracts and not being able to go back home to a country they see as home. And in the past decade, on average, the General Medical Council has struck off almost twice as many, 1.8% registered Asian doctors five times, so that's 4.8 black physicians compared with white medics. And the 2004 strategy, the Race Equality Action Plan, has had some success. So there is a really great race equality scheme that the NHS have, but there does seem to be an absence of measurable benchmark outcomes and the absence of sanctions or incentives which which have meant little accountability and transparency. So there hasn't really been much movement. Now, I'm not trying to pick on the NHS in any way. I'm very, very, very grateful for it. And I have received fantastic care. But I just want to show that this is something that's very intrinsic to UK. And in this context, we're looking at England statistics, culture. And it's really, you know, the workforce is on the face of it very diverse, but we have to delve in deeper and look at what's the actual picture. And then, of course, if people are treated in this way, what is the impact on their mental health? And of course, it's the individual and then it's the impact on society if people can't do their jobs. And you can see there's a real domino effect here. And this is why we need to care about it. And I've also decided to talk about the NHS because there's a lot of information out there. So I think it's helpful to see these examples. But we have to remember that not as many stats are available for all different sectors. So what I'm talking about here could be applied to many, many different sectors. I then also wanted to pick up on an article that was in the BBC on the second of on BBC News on the 2nd of February 2022. So it's very recent and it was entitled NHS riddled with racism against ethnic minority doctors. So the chair of the British Medical Association's Council spoke to the BBC. And uh, some of the stats that were in this piece, in this article, were that more than 70% of people, of, of staff, so that's medical and non-medical, who'd faced racism at work didn't complain about it, according to the British Medical Association. And that at least 75%, um, the term they use is ethnic minority doctors, 75% experienced racism more than once in the last two years. That is a phenomenal number of people. While 17 0.4% said they regularly faced racism at work, so from the survey that they conducted. And the quote that was in the report, it's anonymized, but it said, you experience racism in every hospital you go to. I always felt like we had to do 200 times more to get where we were than our English counterparts. So I want to just ask you a question. How do you think experiencing racism impacts someone's mental health? Well, we're going to delve a bit deeper, but I think it's important to reflect on that question. So needless to say, depression is linked with racism and racist experiences due to the isolation that people experience. And often when we try and talk about racism in the workplace, it is dismissed away or it's, oh, I'm sure they didn't mean it that way because people who haven't experienced racism often feel deeply, deeply uncomfortable and don't know what to do with that information. 
And it's not only experiencing racism firsthand, but also if we have lived experience of racism, watching news reports and seeing police brutality against black communities, uh, witnessing prejudice against friends, family, neighbors, that also has an impact. And indeed, young black women in the UK actually have the highest rates of self-harm. And that self-harm might be more invisible, it might go unnoticed. And also when it's reported, it, it's less likely to be believed. Global majority black and diaspora communities are also less likely to access support and receive appropriate care. And we've talked about this in terms of, you know, culturally sensitive support and how people can access that. And in a recent Chartered Institute for Personal Development study, 4.1% of respondents, and they looked, they surveyed 2,000 people, stated that they had experienced racist discrimination at work. So this is an issue. You know, 4.1% of 2,000 is not insignificant. And in fact, even one person is too much, in my opinion. I want to then go on to share some quotes with you from MIND. So there's some really good resources there around mental ill health, mental health and racism. So this is a quote from someone called Angela on the webpage, and I'm quoting directly. So she says, from believing black people feel less physical pain to sectioning them more frequently, to black women being four times as likely to die during childbirth than their white counterparts, the biases are there within the healthcare sector. There is also a lack of cultural awareness. Some black people express themselves loudly and professionals who lack awareness may perceive this as threatening or disruptive. There's so much in this, what might seem quite short, but I've seen it happen. I've seen people be told to be quiet, that they're being really loud, um, not understanding how certain communities choose to express themselves, stereotyping. So there's a lot in that. And if you feel that you can't get the treatment that you need based on your cultural needs, that is, of course, going to have a huge impact. And then this is a quote from Luke from youngminds.org.uk on their blog entitled Racism and My Mental Health. And Luke says, I felt so depressed and almost worthless in myself because of my skin color. I never spoke to anyone about this, which I think made me feel worse. This contributed to a lot of anxiety and depression for me. After a while, I went to the doctor and asked for their guidance. They referred me to CAMS, so Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, and I started short-term counselling followed by medication for my mental health. This helped me with my emotions, but I still felt off. I felt out of place. I felt like this for about two weeks until I had a realisation. I can't change my skin colour. I can wish and wish that I was white to avoid racism from other people, but I can never change my ethnicity. And this really does bring tears to my eyes and does make me feel incredibly emotional or oh, how people should conform or they made to feel they must conform to a white dominant norm. And everyone has an ethnicity and understanding that. And remember that if you're from a dominant culture, or from a dominant profile, you're not neutral. It's just that things are set up easily and things are set up to empower you. So I just, again, wanted to share those because, of course, I haven't got a guest on today to talk about that. And I think it's really useful to hear things from different perspectives. So it's key to remember that different cultures, and we all have a culture, will have varying perspectives on mental ill health. So in some cultures, psychosis, where you have unusual thought, 
patterns. You might hear things that other people can't hear, such as voices. You might have unusual sensory experiences, delusions, hallucinations could be seen as a calling. It could be seen as a calling from a higher being. And of course, in other cultures, it's seen as terrible and you've got to get medication straight away. Now, of course, it's focusing on the distress. And if someone's in distress, that needs to be addressed and they need to be supported. But how that's then done. And if we go back to the points around black communities being sectioned, um, what often happens is that someone, particularly young black men, might be experiencing anxiety. Um, they might be expressing themselves in a particular way. It's not understood. They're then sectioned, given really strong medication, and they may develop psychosis as a result of that medication, when actually what they needed is a supportive environment to talk through what's been happening for them. In some cultures, religion could be seen as a real help and others as a hindrance. So you don't touch religious texts or go to religious sources for support. And in others, it will be the center point for mental health recovery. Of course, we know that mental ill health is not viewed the same globally and that practitioners may not understand those cultural nuances. And often when people go to seek support, we often have to spend a long time explaining racism to a white counsellor who may never have experienced it in order to then get the help we need. And that in itself can be very, very exhausting. So we also have models around cultural stigma. So what's expected of us in our particular culture? What's the norms? What's OK? What's not OK? Who has the right to be ill? Who has the right not to be ill? And then explanatory models. So how cultures will explain certain things away. So what caused someone to be ill? Is it a curse? Is it because um, they haven't tried hard enough? Is it because they're bored? Is it because they're not working um, enough? So it impacts on the kind of acceptance of the diagnosis or getting to a point where someone gets a diagnosis, who's more at risk and who should be resilient. And then we have cultural isolation versus cultural support. So of course, if people... It, it, this really has an impact on how people accept their mental health, their mental ill health and seek support. So if someone feels culturally isolated or is really frightened to talk about it in the workplace, for example, because they don't want to be labelled or don't want to be thought of as weak, they're less likely to seek support. And equally, that could be the same within the family environment and communities. If, however, they feel really supported in all those situations and it's a case of try it, if it doesn't work, we're here, we can try something else, they're much more likely to get support. And then finally, we have cultural pride. So cultural and ethnic identity pride can really buffer against the mental health effects of racism and prejudice. So if we see people like us that we identify with that are talking openly about their mental ill health and they've recovered, we can have a sense of, well, wow, I really identify with them. And if they can do it, I can do it. And it gives you the broader outlook than the stereotypes or stereotype threat that people often talk about. So what kinds of things can happen in the workplace to impact mental ill health? And I just want to give you um, a snapshot. So it could be that this is very common. You might be a colleague or someone and or a manager and a member of staff from a global majority black diaspora background tells you that they really have noticed and sensed that one colleague stops talking to them whenever they enter a room simply does not give them eye contact and they definitely feel it's due to their race and as a result it's making their working life really difficult and they really want support with this situation as they feel very isolated and to me this is a form of bullying and harassment now we don't know the reason this colleague is doing that but the impact on that individual is huge they might be checking out they might feel that they don't want to come into work and you can see how it starts to snowball another example is that one colleague asking a black colleague how do you manage to change your hairstyle so often? And 
you know, a black colleague can find this very, this question completely inappropriate. Um, there's no real reason that they're asking that. And they might want to come and speak to you as a colleague or a manager and to say, you know what, this is really inappropriate. And I really want the colleague to realise the inappropriateness of this question and to understand its impact. And when this happens day in, day out, because often I get challenged on this and, and told, well, I love to, I'm curious about people. I love to know how they are. I want to know uh, what's going on for them. I want to understand, you know, I, I want to know more about their hair. I think their hair's really pretty. Okay, that's great. But there's no need to ask these questions in the workplace, especially if you don't have a relationship with someone, if you don't have rapport. Um, it's one thing to say, your hair looks lovely. And if someone wants to volunteer how they change their hairstyle that's up to them but I think asking this and remember trigger points for people we don't know someone's journey we don't know whether they had this at school all the time we don't know whether they've had their hair touched inappropriately sadly that seems to be the case for many black colleagues and friends so you really really don't want to do that so I really hope you're enjoying the content of this podcast and you want to keep up to date, then please join my bi-monthly newsletter. The link is in the show notes, but just in case, you can join at bit.ly forward slash DMSYNR. And don't forget, when you join up, you'll receive a free copy of my ebook, The Mentally Healthy Leading Manager. Also, is this your first show or are you a regular listener? If you enjoyed this episode, why not leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts from, and you can leave a review. I'd love to hear from you. And if you want to tag me in on social media, I'll always respond. Okay, so these scenarios, you might be thinking, well, what can we actually do to support people? And I think one of the key things is to understand that that experience is real for someone. And in order to make someone feel validated and less isolated, we need to think about our own lived experience and how we may be disconnected from it, but we need to promote and advocate for policies and procedures and understanding that not everyone has that experience. We also need to not let mistakes deter us from being better and thinking, oh, I can't do it, or I'm really worried about saying the wrong thing. It's okay to say, I'm really sorry that you've been through this, and would you like to speak about it? I'm not sure I'll have all the answers, but I'd really love to listen and, and, and hear you. And then speaking out when you see actions like this in action, even if it's to say, look, I don't think this is the right time to have this conversation, or my understanding is that there have been questions asked about hair. I'd like to explore how appropriate and inappropriate this is in the workplace. And you will know the right phrase to use because there's a lot in this, isn't there? It depends on who said, who said it, what their relationship is, and there's always power dynamics in the workplace. I think it's also our role to educate if we are on our own learning journey peers on how racism damages the profession and can damage people's mental health and create mental ill health through isolation uh, othering someone stereotyping them and not letting them be their full professional selves also we don't have to do it all so if there's some things and opportunities that come up why can't we suggest people that are often overlooked or that don't get a chance to speak and a key part of this is also sitting with discomfort. So those of us who have to deal with discomfort every day, we deal with it. It's not easy, but we do. And those who haven't had to deal with discomfort, the slight sensation of discomfort sends people into a tailspin. And this is why we often get pushback. And then really looking to educate yourself and finding out more around mental health from how people define mental health, expressions of mental ill health in different communities, 
through social media, through reading, through talking to people whose job it is to talk about this and realizing that this is an ongoing journey and we're never going to know it all. I wish I could say I understood every single culture's perspective on mental health and mental ill health. Sadly, I don't. That's that's a lifetime's work and more. But we can do that. And please don't forget how important active listening is. So do check out episode 97, Active Listening to Support, where I go through the models of active listening. But in essence, we don't always have the solution. And it's really important to be mindful of that. But what we do have is we can listen to empower someone. And I'd like to leave you with some questions to reflect on. Um, so the first one is, how would talking about racism and creating an anti-racist culture support everyone's mental health in your workplace. The second question is, how would the current culture need to change in order to accommodate this vision? And if this could be done, so if you could change the culture to accommodate a vision of an anti-racist, mentally healthy workplace, what might those conversations need to be? So a couple of things for you to consider. And don't forget, you can also signpost people to diverse services. So the resources I'm going to mention in this episode are Black Minds Matter, Black Thrive, the Muslim Youth Helpline, the Black African and Asian Therapy Network, or BATN, so that's B-A-A-T-N, Rainbow Noir, which is support for Black LGBTQ plus communities, and Campaign Against Living Miserably Calm. Now, do have a look. There'll be more resources than that, I'm sure. And I know there are lots and lots of grassroots organizations, but I did want to mention those because often I'm asked their question, well, what do you know, what do people do? How do we actually do that? So racism, sadly, is very, very real. It looks a particular way in the workplace. It can result in marginalization, isolation. And of course, that has a huge impact on people's mental health. And if you want to have a recap around mental ill health and loneliness, please do check out last week's episode number 141. But we know that as humans, we need connection and we need to be able to connect with people and we need to feel secure. We need to enjoy what we're doing day to day and we need to have enough um, finances to live our life comfortably day to day. And work is a key part of that. So if we don't feel comfortable at work, if we're experiencing racism at work and it's having an impact on our mental health and well-being. It's going to have a knock-on effect in everything in our life. There are things that we can do to support people, thinking before we speak, listening when people want to share something with us and calling things out on a daily basis. So I really hope you found this episode useful and please let me know the other topics you'd like me to talk about. I'd really love to hear from you. So don't forget, you can leave me a message on my speak pipe and the link is bit.ly forward slash SPKPDMP. Thank you so much for listening and don't forget to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast from. And I'll see you in the next episode. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Diverse Minds Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access your podcast from. You can also connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Tune into next week's episode of the podcast, where I'll bring you more insights on mental health and inclusion. Bye for now.